0: Welcome to today's Conversation: Collaborative Transformation Driving the Deal. Life Science Partnership Opportunities, Pitfalls, and Impact. We're excited to bring you perspectives from McDermott's Life Sciences thought leaders on the trends and opportunities they're seeing in the market today. Joining us Emmanuel Trom and Gary Howes. Emmanuel, let's start with you, if we may. Talk to me a little bit about what the top areas for collaboration in the life sciences space are today and, and what seems interesting about them.
1: Collaboration in life science has uh, been uh, booming over the past uh, decades. In large pharma, the number of people uh, in scooting, business development, alliance management teams have increased significantly, and large pharma now outsource most of their innovation. But it's not only about pharma and biotech. We have seen also newcomers in this type of collaboration with healthcare players, such as payers, insurers, providers, who are now developing new partnership to optimize And diversify their services as well as increase their position in the value chain. And finally, we have seen a number of technology players. Uh, Now moving into the healthcare uh, space with uh, tremendous resources to invest in this area. So it's a very active uh, segment of our practice uh, and we are facing, uh, given the number of players and situation, a large variety of deal structures and with more and more complexities. So it's a very exciting space. Uh, for uh,
0: atornis in life science. Gary, did you have some thoughts on the trends and the most interesting partnerships out there right now as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I agree with everything Emmanuel was saying. And what you've got is lots of different players, as Emmanuel was saying, but also traditional players actually entering into collaborations where they wouldn't have before. So, so you can see that Big Pharma is doing collaborations with Big Pharma. And a lot of that is driven by the... The technology itself. So, if say you've got some unexploited biology, say you've got a checkpoint inhibitor, everybody wants one. Then, when they look to put them into combinations, they suddenly you have an exponential increase in the number of trials that have to be run. Not all companies have the resource, the wherewithal to do that in in any sort of time scale that would be of any use to them. So they split areas, which is you know, hasn't been the Certainly hasn't been the norm in the past. And then amongst the new players that you have in the marketplace, there's there's a lot more philanthropic or impact investment happening where to the extent that now you have to be bringing something more to um, a collaboration rather than just some financial resource to, to get some trials done. So because some of these philanthropic impact type organizations have just as much financial clout as the traditional investors and, and the big pharma companies you can't just be coming with the money you have to be coming with something something special something which suits your collaboration partner which can turn into something perhaps long term so that there's more choice for um, for the technology as to where it might go I say there's more choice you know but you've still got to find it you've still got to to do the deal and get it done. But it's a different landscape. People are still trying to do the same things, but they're getting there in in slightly different ways.
1: That's a very interesting comment because we are seeing more and more uh, variety and complexity in the field uh, due to those different players. And typically what has developed over uh, the years are uh, uh, co-development uh, type of deals where activities are allocated among regions or expertise depending on the, the strengths of the different partners. And uh, on, the, on the contract side, it requires to provide for strong governance and alliance management to make sure. Uh, all those pieces will uh, will stay aligned, and also what we have seen also in terms of variety of transaction is that biotechs now have more uh, alternatives. They have access to large financing uh, through uh, specialized or uh, capital markets, and therefore they have more leverage in in the negotiations. So they are not just providing their technology to the large pharma, but they want to to stay involved and uh, keep uh, uh, co developing the product and also share uh, the the profits. So that that's an increasing trend also in in that in that field. You're
0: mentioning this idea of these organizations who have historically worked. Uh, in very different ways now coming together. Gary also talked about sort of the the different expectations, depending on whether it's two traditional players doing new things or a disruptive entry and a traditional player doing new things. One of the things I'd love to pick up on there is the expectations around some of these collaborative transformations. And they seem to be particularly high um, from a market perspective when we look at partnerships between technology companies um, and and large pharma companies. Can you talk a little bit about what the state of those types of partnerships are right now, and whether you think the market or the organizations will really be able to realize the promise that they're expecting from those?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very interesting uh, topic. So the interest of uh, traditional pharmaceutical players uh, for uh, connected, uh, what we call connected health devices and uh, technology, it could be software, medical devices, and uh, the the new technology uh, fields. Have, um, yeah, it's very recent. So I did my first uh, deal uh, between a large pharma and uh, a medtech uh, uh, developing a software, uh, a medical software. It was ten years ago, and at the time we had very little benchmark. It was very interesting because uh, we were really shaping the deal as we went. And um, at the time I remember the rail was uh, that the device should have regulatory approval and uh, and then uh, it became the reimbursement. And now everything is about data. So you need as much data as you can in order to um, improve your device and to uh, also exploit the, the data. And so we moved from a model where we had uh, the, the traditional pharmaceutical model uh, of exclusive collaboration toward a more open collaboration which, uh, in order to allow to, to collect more, more data for the device. So yeah, now I think every, every pharma have an interest in connected health and, uh, and technology. And the question is uh, whether, um, and that's your, that, that's your question, uh, how successful can uh, all these collaboration be? and um, i think my short answer is that uh, yeah it will be successful it's a must because uh, there is an increase of um, cost of developing healthcare product and uh, treatment and uh, on the other end we have very strong constraints on on healthcare budget so we need to come up and the, the industry need to come up with creative solution uh, to bridge that gap and it's what technology is about so uh, the, uh, a number of these collaborations will succeed, but there are a lot of hurdles, a lot of uh, uh, cultural differences, a lot of um, difference in uh, the market perception. The market itself is very moving and evolving, so a lot of hurdles to make uh, make them a success, but uh, what is sure is that uh, it's a must and it's really a path to follow.
2: Yeah, I would say as, as well there, that um... <laughs> What Emmanuel says about the, the differences, and there are, if you think of the differences between the two businesses traditionally, so a, so a, a life sciences healthcare company is looking at a life cycle for its product which is something like 20 odd years, you know, some, someone's discovered something, there's eight to ten years of development before it hits the marketplace, that's not the model that pure tech companies are used to, um, how the, those things are protected, how how quickly they change, how quickly they're developed. You know, they're coming at them from totally different scenarios, really, if you, if you look at their traditional businesses. So when they bring them together, you have to make sure that everyone's expectations are, are somehow aligned. And sometimes you, you can see that as a challenge. We certainly have examples of, of um, more uh, tech companies straying into the healthcare space and suddenly finding themselves having to be Regulated Certainly in, in Europe, you know, companies with apps became very surprised that their app might qualify as a medical device and suddenly they have to be, uh, make sure that they're, they're properly um, authorised to, to actually sell, sell their app. And those sorts of things hadn't been in their minds before. So there's some, um, you know, there has to be some sort of realignment so that both uh, parties on either side of the collaboration understand each other's business enough to be able to make them a success.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, You know, Emmanuel said, everything is about data now, right, we know that's true. I think healthcare and life sciences companies have had all this time and investment spent in making sure they're not just getting the data, but protecting it. Tech companies have clearly spent lots of time and energy protecting privacy and and data as well, but the two come from very different places, Gary, as you mentioned. And one of the challenges that comes up repeatedly is this idea um, or area of regulation and regulatory requirements. Talk to me a little bit about what challenges those pose, how people are, are addressing them, and what folks need to be aware of as they think about finding the common ground between the two worlds in which they're operating
1: access to uh, patient data is very sensitive it is uh, it has uh, in most of the countries uh, been restricted especially for uh, pharmaceutical companies and insurer and uh, but but there is another layer of restrictions uh, and uh, and that applies in again most of the country whether the US Europe uh, uh, China, Japan, about uh, the, the protection of uh, what is called the data privacy. So in, in Europe, we, we, we have data privacy regulation that entered into force uh, last year, and it makes it uh, complicated to um, structure deal around uh, data um, because there are a, a number of requirements to be followed. And to give you an example, uh, pseudonymized data, that is data without the name of the patient but just a code identifying the patient, would be regarded in Europe as personal data and subject to the same type of restrictions as personal data. And this could be uh, a a hurdle for uh, the development of digital health because it, it limits the ability to uh, use uh, the data collected in a m- meaningful uh, fashion. But this is a, a moving area, there is, uh, because the, the GDPR has entered into force uh, last year, there are still a number of questions and uh, interpretation, and uh, let's see where this will lead us.
2: There's this tightrope be- being walked, I think, in that there is a massive amount of data out there which can transform the efficacy and efficiency of healthcare delivery amongst other things. And those, certainly the public service providers, who are the ones delivering the healthcare and and looking for ways to make it more efficacious and efficient, are also the ones collecting the data. And they're, they're actually trying to, certainly in the UK context where you have the National Health Service, make sure that uh, everything becomes you know can be more efficient more efficacious but without um, somehow encroaching into into the the realms of data privacy and compromising people's personal data which is a real problem because of course medical data is particularly personal data and so it's you know it's a thin line and um, it, it somehow <laughs> needs to be um, overcome if if the if the great promise that huge data sets offer can really be realized.
0: We've talked a good bit about technology companies as the partner to pharma, but what about biotechs, right? They've been in this space a bit longer, certainly, and as big pharma companies continue to race to the next big blockbuster drug, biotechs have become increasingly popular targets for collaboration and certainly acquisition as well. What are some of the best practices, Gary, that you're seeing in your market or lessons learned in that space that both pharma and, and or biotechs can take away to make these collaborations more successful going forward?
2: For one thing, as far as new assets and new new medical technologies and, and, and medicinal products is concerned, big pharma needs the, the biotech industry. You know, that, that's why it exists. It exists because um, big pharma is not concentrating on research and development. It is allowing this whole ecosystem of of the the smaller, more innovative companies to come up with the new drugs. But a lot of these companies, they're very small. They're often academics who've who've spun out of academic institutions or or medical institutions. Um, They have um, a particular asset that they're trying to to push forward. And so then the question is, how, how do they Uh, make themselves as attractive as they can because it's a competitive marketplace for for the the seller's point of view as well uh, to the big pharma companies and i think you hear lots of different things from pharma industry as to what it's looking for and they often change because their strategies change their managements change and their strategies change again but for one thing biotech has to be clear about what their asset is what their drug target is be clear about and be clear about what differentiates them the competition because there will be competition. This is like any other industry, there are uh, attractive areas, hot areas um, at the same time where there will be lots of different players looking to um, make themselves more attractive than their competitors to to their possible suitors and so you need to um, differentiate yourself. Um, You need to also maybe stress test your, your own valuation of your asset or, or of the company. Although, of course, Big Pharma will do that themselves by, by showing their interest. But be, and be mindful of, of the real practicalities. Can you actually demonstrate that um, you've considered and considered seriously the complexities and practicalities of actually scaling up production, you know, getting the product commercialized? Uh, and actually getting it paid for, because that's become one of the first things that that Big Pharma will actually do. They're, they're looking to see whether this product, if it's successful, whether they'll get reimbursed their price for it from certainly in those countries where um, public health systems are the major marketplace for them. And, and so that will go to the, the actual heart of the value of the asset. So those sorts of things are, are, are kind of um, you know, they're, they're what you need just to pass the hygiene test to to be an attractive asset to big pharma, I'd say.
0: Emmanuel, what about from your perspectives? I know you said at one point that you're less used to, or you're more used to, I should say, identifying the gaps between biotechs and, and pharma companies in these um, arrangements because they, they have been in place longer and they are a bit more common. What are some of the lessons you've really learned that you would share with organizations looking to enter these agreements?
1: There are a few uh, tips to bear in mind when you uh, prepare for a deal. So you have the the first, uh, the key word is uh, prepare. So you have to prepare your due diligence, your negotiation, and your alternatives. On the due diligence front, it's not only uh, due diligence about your partner. So, of course, you need to ensure that your partner has uh, the same or has a cultural fit. It will be a, a key factor for a successful partnership and ensure that uh, it has also a strategic fit and alignment because uh, you will rely, for, uh, as a biotech, for your value creation largely on your partner and its ability to develop and commercialize a product. And then you must ensure that it's, uh, yeah, it has uh, the, the strategic willingness to do so, and um, um, even though a large pharma, as Gary said, may always change strategy, but uh, at least if a strategy at the time you enter into a, 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 the agreement is, uh, is a good one, you have a better chance that your deal uh, be a success. Then you have to do also diligence on yourself. You need to make sure that uh, you turn every stone and you, uh, you are prepared to question that may uh, uh, arise in due diligence. You have a prepared answer, uh, the prepared remediation plan. Because you have to bear in mind that within a large pharma organization, the business development person you deal with is your champion, and you have to facilitate his life uh, to, to be able He has his own negotiation in his organization with committees and, and the like. So you have to really facilitate his life uh, in order for your uh, project uh, to move forward. Then of course you prepare your negotiation, your valuation model, your uh, proposed split of value, but most of all you prepare your alternatives and uh, setting a competitive process is the best way to create momentum and maximize your value uh, you may also, you need also to, to have a, a financing alternative because you don't want to enter into a negotiation with a, a little cash on hand because you, you need to, to be prepared that the negotiation takes some time and, uh, and to have enough money uh, in the bank to, to, to uh, negotiate uh, your way through. Uh, Then, of course, during the negotiation, my tip is uh, to keep uh, uh, the deal structure as simple as possible. We discussed earlier that uh, there there, there are more and more complexities in the collaboration in life science. Uh, But sometimes too much complexity is counterproductive, it takes time to negotiate, and uh, it's very difficult to enforce. So uh, sometimes short-term payment and obligation are better than large bio-dollars down the road. And uh, and finally, a deal is not done when it's uh, signed, especially in, in life science, because a large chunk of the consideration is backloaded. So you need to make sure that after the deal is signed, you maintain the communication, you maintain good alliance management. Uh, in order uh, to to make sure the collaboration is fruitful.
2: Yeah, I'm particularly keen on on Emmanuel's uh, self due diligence because when your partner starts doing their due diligence, you know if there are gaps and if you cannot fill them quickly, if you you do not know the answers, first up that undermines confidence in the whole deal. Second, it's a great driver down of value. So. You know, you, you, in the end, you will pay for that, it's, that's, um, that you know, that's the whole point of being prepared, making sure that everything is um, as it should be so that there are no questions that need to be asked. As soon as you're in a situation where we're having to fill gaps and, and it can, it's getting a bit vague, uh, that does undermine um, the confidence uh, of the partner in, in, in the asset and, and the whole alliance.
0: Over the years, have biotechs become savvier in your individual opinions about negotiating these partnerships and collaborations? And do you see that continuing to evolve, or, or see the relationship between biotechs and and larger life sciences companies evolving generally? What
1: uh, we have seen is, uh, but it, it's linked to the trend about more collaboration. Is uh, yeah more uh, is a savvier teams uh, both in in the large pharma and the biotech. In the large pharma, there is clearly a willingness to be more collaborative and uh, to adopt uh, more flexible uh, structures and uh, also on the biotech more and more uh, know-how about how to make deal and uh, leverage as well as we discussed earlier more financing more uh, in very for uh, very attractive assets we will see more um, expertise in in the deal making and uh, ability to deal with uh, very efficient uh, deal structures.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could find plenty of people you know, 20-odd years ago would say the big farmers' attitude to things was, uh, we know best, uh, we're paying the money, we're taking over, don't come into the kitchen, basically. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of how it was. Then little things would be chipped away, the, the biotech companies would uh, be seeking to have uh, more input into the whole development process and then into the commercialization process, um, they became slightly more collaborative and, and until where we are today, where by necessity, but also now, I think, um, by preference, there is real collaboration. Like, it is a collaboration. There is a real alliance. Um, big Pharma has you know, big collaboration teams and alliance management teams because they know that, to get the very best out of these assets that they are paying enormous amounts of money for, uh, they need to bring along the the people from their partner with them to make sure that the very best of the asset is is brought to the table. So I I think you know there has been a change. It's not as if one day something changed. It's it's over time things things change. But I th- I think there is more of a and in, and as I said earlier, now that you know big farmer itself you know. Two big pharma companies w- will collaborate. That hardly ever happened back in the day, but now does. So that's um, yeah, that's certainly a, a trend.
0: Well, it's obvious that the market is moving more quickly uh, and in different uh, in in many different directions simultaneously. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see it continue to play out. We covered a lot of a lot of ground here around life sciences collaborations um, in general, but if we had to narrow in. Just to sort of sum up the conversation, if I asked you each to provide one, one piece, your best piece of advice to life sciences companies as they're thinking about collaborating um, with both traditional and non-traditional partners, uh, Emmanuel, let me, let me start with you. What would you leave them with?
1: Yeah, I'm going to repeat myself, but I think the, the key words are prepare, create good momentum and keep it simple. And again, remember that, that a deal is not done when signed and that uh, a successful collaboration needs uh, very strong alliance management. That's
0: my advice. Wonderful. Gary, final words of wisdom from your side.
2: Well, again, I think, you know, the be prepared, it's very much the, the scout movement. Um, motto needs to be repeated again Um, and also try and understand uh, your collaboration partner because you know you have biotechs come along they think they know that uh, big pharma has a lot of money it wants to take products to market but sometimes it's not you know it's not just as simple as that you you kind of have to understand your partner and accommodate their own context so that it may not look to you like the particularly the ideal way forward, but together it should be the best way forward.
0: So prepare, understand, and accommodate seems to be the guidance that we're, we're leaving folks with today, uh, which sounds, sounds like a good path forward. Thank you so much, uh, Emmanuel and Gary, both for your time today. And thanks so much to our listeners for joining us. For more analysis about collaborative transformation, check out McDermott's Health and Life Sciences news blog at Health Life Science News. Dot .com and uh, thanks again for listening.